So, welcome to Left Out, uh, reality-based independent radio broadcasting on WRCT 88.3 FM and on podcasting on the World Wide Web at leftout.info. Left Out discusses the news from a perspective left out of the mainstream media and is co-hosted by me, Bob Harper. And me, Danny Slater. And today's program is produced by Darren Guler, for whom we're grateful for the effort. Uh, today we have on our program, and the first program of the semester after a bit of time off, uh, we were happy to welcome back to Left Out Thomas Frank, who a few years ago was a guest on Left Out discussing his book at that time, uh, What's the Matter with Kansas, which is a widely discussed book about uh, the uh, uh, Republican Party and the Republicanization of America and the voting patterns we've seen. He's written a new book called uh, The Wrecking Crew, How Conservatives Rule, uh, which is uh, talking about uh, our experience of the uh, uh, Republican government over the last uh, eight years, or actually longer, even something like 28 years. So, Thomas Frank, uh, welcome to Left Out. So, how are you guys today? Uh, we're doing very well. Thank you very much. Uh, I am glad to have you back. I must say, uh, once again, uh, although I, I spent a, couple, a large part of the last couple of weekends uh, reading and enjoying your book, uh, I, I must actually hand you a comment that you hear very often, which is that, uh, to be honest, I really found it appalling. And, and it was I'm really sorry. You know, I try I try really hard to to, to deliver a quality book. Well, I would say you, I would say you have. So, the, to summarize for our listeners, so the the thesis of the book uh, is uh, maybe could be pithily summarized by saying that the apparent failures of the Bush administration, or going back even further, but particularly the Bush administration, are actually nothing of the kind. They're just a, it's a smashing success. Yeah, that's one way of looking at it. That the, the, all the things that we think of as you know disasters were uh, are in some way the uh, you know the product of of, uh, of years of conservative ideology and its successful implementation. You know, in various agencies and that sort of thing. Yeah. So one thing you document, uh, I think, I gather from remarks you've made in the book that uh, we're probably approximately the same age within a, within a few years of each other, and a lot of your memories that you talk about uh, of what Washington used to be like and our image of government, I think, uh, very likely uh, we share. And uh, in the beginning of the book, you talk about, in some sense, the good old days of when uh, government seemed to function and when working for the government was a noble cause. I mean, when people, for example, I've known many people older than me who felt called to public service by Kennedy's uh, inaugural speech, and it just seems infinitely long ago. Uh, yeah, that was, the, that was the golden age. And, uh, I mean, since Reagan, you know, there's just been this uh, sort of endless campaign to vilify uh, and, and trash federal workers, and not just, you know, rhetorically, uh, but to make it unpleasant uh, to work for the government. Um, and this goes on to this day. I mean, at the Republican convention two weeks ago, Mitt Romney uh, talked about taking them on, even how they need to. We need to come after them even more. You know, they're still a big. They're still the problem. Government workers. I mean, uh, I mean, I don't know what what you want me to talk about here, but uh, there's uh, there uh, the, what they get paid compared to what what people get paid in the sort of private sector government who really runs things now. There's this enormous differential. Um, I mean, federal workers are, uh, to some degree, are charity workers. Yeah, so I, I know uh, one thing that you mentioned in the beginning is that, I mean, it used to be possible in working for the government, not to mention working for many companies in the U.S., it used to be possible to have a comfortable middle-class existence. Not 
nothing extravagant, but you could at least have a house and a, and a reasonably uh, content family life. And now it's turned into uh, it's it's completely decimated. The, this whole yeah, well, that that whole model has has been you know superseded by a different one. What's happened is Washington has become a very very wealthy city. And this might surprise your reader. Your, sorry, this might surprise your listeners. But it's become a wealthy city under conservatives. Uh, it's not, you know, liberalism with its dreams of taxing and spending and big government and all that. It's not liberalism that made Washington the richest city in America. It's the first the Reagan administration and then the Bush administration that have driven it right on up there. And they did it by um, uh, privatizing and outsourcing federal operations. You know, sending billions off to the the big contractors uh, who now essentially run the government. Yeah. But is there any argument you can make? I mean, they, well, they construct, they concoct arguments for the great efficiency afforded by outsourcing everything and how the, how the, you know, the, the market uh, makes things so much more efficient, but that is just mathematically proven incorrect just simply like looking at the money that's flowing into these completely extravagant, ridiculous things you describe in the book, the, the houses with 8,000 square feet, the mansions with, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's just, and, and there's a little video on your webpage as well. Yeah, yeah, where yeah. You, you, you draw saw the around. video. Yes, I saw the video. I, I, I was taking a guy around to show him the, the, the two different Washingtons, you know, the old sort of New Deal neighborhoods, and then um, and then where the, where the contractors live, and, and police chased us out of the <laughs> Of this neighborhood where we were filming these, uh, you know, these obscene houses, these kind of, uh, you know, Louis the Fourteenth sort of places. And these are uh, these are all the defense people or lobbyists organizations. Yeah, that's right, Lobby- and so lobbyists and uh, contractors. Uh, and they, I mean, it's a, it is an extraordinarily wealthy town. And what, the, the effect that this has is, you know, to bid everything uh, out of the reach of your sort of mere federal worker, uh, and also to make. Uh, to make the power of money uh, just that much greater. I mean, these people get what they want through all sorts of – there's all sorts of different techniques through which they can uh, make government do their bidding. But one of them is the amounts of money that they can offer, whether you're talking about congressmen or whether you're talking about you know lowly employees of the federal government, you know, to come and work for them and to – you know uh, the sort of unspoken part of the deal is, and to to do as we and do as we ask while you are in government. Um, you look at all the people retiring from Congress uh, this this time around uh, since the elections of '06. There's a whole bunch of Republicans that are retiring, and uh, all of all of the ones I believe who have so far who've quit have become lobbyists. Um, you know, it's it, it, that's just what they do now. It's become a you know, self-generating or a cycle there that's going on. Yeah. Uh, uh, one of the one of the you things. The, yeah, you do the lobbyist bidding while you're in Congress, and then you get a sweet job at the lobbyist firm when you get out. So one of the things is, uh, you know, uh, we going back to you mentioned at the beginning of the Reagan era, which certainly we're old enough to remember. But I think many of our listeners here at Carnegie Mellon weren't even born when Reagan started out his uh, his term of office by firing the uh, the air traffic controllers because they went on strike. Yeah. And so that was somehow the beginning. But this is all in the same way that I now look back at uh, Dick Nixon and think, boy, you know, he wasn't such a bad guy after all. Even though I was a Nixon hater from day one, I must tell you, uh, I really. Well, Nixon was never really permitted to do all the things he wanted to do. Right. You know, Congress was very liberal in those days. And, and, uh, Nixon, and exercise Nixon some came oversight. up with some pretty diabolical schemes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
but the, where I was heading with it is that the the level of of the well, I would call it the corruption, but your argument is is it, it, it's really the wrong way to look at things. But the level of corruption and incompetence has been elevated to extraordinary uh, heights in the uh, in the Bush administration. I think of all these characters in Congress, like Tom Delay or Duke Cunningham or Rob Ney or all these characters, and uh, yeah, it's just entrepreneurship. All these guys. I mean, it's become yeah, just a vehicle for them to to make money. Exactly. It's this is a movement that celebrates entrepreneurship and celebrates billionaires and celebrates you know the, the free market and uh, it's it's you know where do they draw the line and why how why are they able to say I mean and how are they able to say but then when you go into Congress then you you don't get to be an entrepreneur anymore I mean of course the logic of the of the argument pushes in the other direction and uh, a lot of I mean Jack Abramoff well a lot of people have used this term the political entrepreneur. And Washington is filled with political entrepreneurs, people who make money uh, through politics. Um, it's you know it's a fascinating idea. By the way, there's very few of these people on the left. It's it's a phenomenon that basically doesn't exist on the left. Uh, like many of the things I described in the book, yeah, so this was, there, there is no parallel. This is a very good point that I wanted to get to, which is, yeah, the, the, the standard argument, if it just to pick the person on the street, if you tell them about some of these things, their reaction is bound to be, oh, they all do it. Yeah, of course. It's just a sort of res resignation and cynicism, yeah. And that, that's in some ways a reasonable response because that's what the media says. The media is, uh, you know, I don't know if you've seen the, the reaction to my book but uh, uh, or, or care about it. I don't know why you would. But um, the, is that, you know, of course both parties do everything in exactly equal measure. Mm. They're, they're, they're mirror images one of the other. And you know, if you examine them closely, or hell, if you don't if you just examine them at all, you, you know, this is just not true. They're they're two completely different beasts. This is not to let the Democrats off the hook for anything. Uh, it's just stating the facts. Right. And then this is a standard uh, complaint called we, uh, called false balance, where you have to come up with. You write something critical of Republicans, you have to come up with a parallel. Uh, criticism of the Democrats. That's right. And, that's, right. And it's, yeah. that's what makes it. It was very hard for the like the Washington Post to cover uh, the Jack Abramoff scandal, for example, because it didn't. It involved very few Democrats, and so you know they were. <laughs> so it just can't be <laughs> so right. What are they I mean, supposed to do with it? Yes, exactly. Well, the, one of the things I found interesting about your book, uh, I, I consider myself rightly or wrongly reasonably well informed on political matters, but I must say I had no idea of the extent of the Abramoff, uh, Abramoff's involvement in many different political exploits, uh, which I might ask you to summarize, and along yeah. with his, well, the Grover Norquist, his, uh, his fellow traveler there. A number yeah, of these Norquist, characters. Is a, Norquist is a fascinating guy, by the way. So uh, I mean, they both are. They're, I was, uh, when the Abramoff scandal broke, I did what everyone else in media land did, and I ran a LexisNexis search and found all the articles about him going back to the beginning, and, mm -hmm. you know, just from that sort of skeletal outline, I discovered that this guy had a really, really interesting career. He'd been president of the college Republicans. He'd right. run a think tank. Uh, he'd, uh, you know, uh, he'd made movies, this sort of thing. And then I went back and did the research. You know, found the old magazines from the 80s uh, where he had done interviews and talked to, uh, you know, colleagues of his at the college Republicans and got my hands on a lot of the old college Republican documents and that sort of thing. And uh, the guy was an incredible leader and, you know, started up this think tank that was later later turned out to be a program of the South African, you know, the apartheid regime's military intelligence. Um, you know, fascinating thing. He had a small uh, part in Iran-Contra. 
Um, he was just all over the place. And what what Jack Abramoff's story tells us, and this is the fascinating thing about the guy, is that in conservative Washington, you can be an idealist and a corruptionist at the same time. But the two things don't necessarily uh, conflict. Right. So this is one of the more appalling aspects of your book, I must say, was uh, detailing this. Uh, it turns out that Abramoff goes back to the uh, Jonas Savimbi's. Uh, uh, he, he loved Savimbi. Uh, and so did Reagan. I remember um, many times Jonas Savimbi showing up in Washington for some photo op with Reagan. But I didn't realize yeah, that Abramoff was in bed with Savimbi, who was uh, well. But but he's just the one the one bad apple, right? Abramoff. But this is what your <laughs> book proves. That <it's laughs> so that's an interesting point, which we'll, maybe we'll get to in a moment. But we should at least mention, you know, and also involvement with the apartheid regime in South Africa, and then switching sides to the other side. Maybe you can detail a little bit more of that for us. Yeah, it's a it's a you know at the at the end of the day, conservatism is a is a movement of uh, almost pure opportunism. It's only. It, it 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 rallies around one thing only, and that is uh, you know money, uh, you know the needs of the business class. I mean, it'll even throw uh, its its doctrine of free markets overboard, as we've seen just here in the last few days. But you know, Abramoff uh, ran this uh, think tank uh, that was supported by the apartheid regime in South Africa, and they started out first as you know stout supporters of the south african government not that they, they because they were anti-communist that's right mm-hmm. exactly they didn't support apartheid mm-hmm. per se i mean mm-hmm. they would always say you know we didn't they weren't racists right but they <laughs> they were doing everything they could to back up this government and uh and then when things got bleak you know really things looked really bad for apartheid uh, you know, America had slapped sanctions on them, and uh, then uh, the the worst thing was then communism fell. You know, the Soviet Union fell apart, and so they didn't have an enemy to worry about anymore and to scare the outside world with anymore. And so then they, you know, and, and clearly their days were numbered, so they needed a different rationale. And then this think tank completely turned on its heel and started denouncing the apartheid government for being socialist. <laughs> right. And, uh, yeah, and then... Um, Abramoff later resurfaced as the lobbyist for the Marianas Islands, uh, for Saipan, uh, which you might know about because it's uh, your or your listeners might know about because it's sort of the site of some of the worst, you know, labor violations in in the United States. Yeah, so you might you might want to detail that. I, Tom Delay was hung was caught up in all of that. Oh, yeah, and Tom Delay thought the thought Saipan really rocked. He thought it was a model for the rest of America. It's a it's an island uh, near the Philippines. It's part of the U.S. They were able to control their own immigration and their own uh, minimum wage, and uh, so immediately they just brought in uh, international, you know, garment industry, you know, sweatshops, and they imported people to work in them, paid them very little, and these people, of course, had no power, uh, the workers, that is, since they weren't citizens, and they could be deported at whim. And whatever they manufactured would be stamped made in USA, and you could buy it in your you know local department store. And Jack Abramoff was their lobbyist. Yeah, and this uh, is yeah. a guy. Okay, so that amazed me is that here's Abramoff again. Yeah, <laughs> you know wherever there is just you know some really awful thing going on, this dude shows up. I know it's a, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's extraordinary. Yeah, it extraordinary. So he's their lobbyist. And uh, uh, he came up with, or seems to have come up with, uh, you know, a plan for defending uh, Saipan. And the plan involved, uh, you know, basically calling anybody who uh, who uh, criticized the island system, calling them a racist. And this is the guy that (laughs) just ten years previously 
had effectively been on the payroll of uh, the apartheid regime. It's uh, astonishing. Uh, it, it really exemplifies very well, though, as you say, that the, the real issue is money. I mean, they don't believe in the free market. I've often said this. They don't believe in a free market at all. They believe in making money. <laughs> they believe in making money. That's the yeah, that's right. Money. Whatever method is that makes money it's is to, the method to, it's, it's, money. it's about it's about class power. Yes. is what is what conservatism is about. It's about the, the the class that owns the country should rule the country and should be able to do as they goddamn well please. Uh, you know, and uh, whether you whether you use the doctrine of laissez-faire to to rationalize that, you know, the doctrine of deregulation, or you know, you turn around and you're bailing out AIG. It, it's, That's know, all fine too. Yes, they turn. Yeah, it's one or the other. It doesn't matter. Absolutely you know, one day you, one day you're you 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 love apartheid. The next day you hate apartheid. It just depends on the situation. It's all. Uh, it's all relative. So I think one of the one of the things that I, I'm not sure that it, uh, is, is widely enough appreciated is the deliberate. You know, people. Uh, it's 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 impossible to deny anymore the grotesque uh, incompetence of the of the Bush administration. But the the thing that, that you're arguing in your book, in which I find compelling, is that this is the intended outcome. This is the purpose. This is they're doing this deliberately. This is not a failure, but a success. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know if I'd say it's 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 that they I mean they don't. Don't, they, they definitely don't bring in, you know, talented people. That's deliberate. Mm-hmm. But they also they don't really want everything to fail. Like I mean, they want some things to fail. They want the labor department to, you know, to stop making things tough for for business owners. Or the EPA. But 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 they I don't think Bush really wanted FEMA to drop the ball as badly as it did after after Hurricane Katrina. I mean that that ruined his presidency. You know, uh, but, but why did he I, appoint that clown as the director, though? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, because they don't believe in appointing competent people. You know, they believe it's. They're, I mean, they they're 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 constantly being destroyed by their own beliefs in much the same way that what what we're seeing on Wall Street today. That the you know the market will tear itself apart. You know, if you let uh, if you let the financial sector just run wild, this is what it will do every time. Boom and bust. It's the old. You know, this is what they do. It is, but it's in many ways. I mean, not only do I personally find it appalling, but it's hard to, in some ways, it's hard to understand the logic of it. I guess it's just a, a gra- you know, crash and grab kind of thing, right? Get get it now and uh, put your money well, in a Swiss yeah. bank account, and then the hell with it. Worry about later, later. Get in, get out, get rich. No, yeah. it's always short term. This is the problem with uh, with with uh, with with capitalism. Of course, is, is short term thinking. I mean, they never ever ever consider the long term consequences, and and all these people come out of the business world. Um, so you know, you get a guy. You put you know, Bush put in his campaign manager as uh, as the head of FEMA. The guy works there a couple of years and then zips off and becomes a consultant, or what you and I would call a lobbyist. You know, working for. Uh, for companies that have business with the Department of Homeland Security, which is you know the biggest money pot in D.C. now after the Department of Defense you know, is handing out the contracts left and right. So he's gone, and he just turns it over to his buddy, you know, Michael Brown, who has, uh, has even less experience. And um, and meanwhile, there's the the war on on federal employees going on, you know. Constantly bad mouthing them, and you know they're you know freezing their salary or whatever it is that they're doing this year, and uh, morale is very low. People are leaving as fast as they can to go to the private sector because they're paying so much more there, and so you wind up with an agency that's thematized. Several people in Washington would use this term when I would talk to them: thematized, wow. uh, an agency that is just completely hollowed out and ruined, and ruined by these. Uh, 
by this uh, this this strategy of governing. But going back to this idea of parity, though, I mean, you, you can't help but observe certainly over the last two years, the Democrats go along with all of this. Uh, well, they're, they they didn't don't really have any say over the way the executive branches run. I mean, especially during the Republican Congress, they they had no say at all. Now, in the Clinton years, they did similar things, but they never they they and I and I I'm, I'm critical of Clinton in the book. Um, you know, I'm I'm no big fan of Bill Clinton. No, me either. But uh, uh, they didn't do anything nearly as bad as this. In fact, that FEMA Clinton put in a, a very good uh, manager at FEMA. A guy, a guy, get this, had a lot of experience with dis- with natural disasters. Well, James Lee <laughs> Witt, if I'm not mistaken. What do you know? I mean, okay. it's just it's it's a it's a basic thing. I mean, that, uh, that liberals tend to believe in government uh, and and to take it seriously, to take its mission seriously, or or they tend to believe in liberal government. I should say we should always clarify that that's what we're talking about. Here. I mean, there are some aspects of government that conservatives love. You know, the Federal Reserve, they don't fool around with that. Mm-hmm. So another thing, I noticed another thing in one chapter in your book where you talk about the sort of philosophical underpinnings of corruption, where you actually, and this I wasn't aware of this, there's actually sort of apparently some scholars at universities who actually write scholarly papers claiming that corruption is a natural and, and a good good thing to have because, well, People have the money; they're the ones who should be influencing or, or yeah, something. I mean, I, maybe right. you can explain well, the argument. If you if you understand government itself as an extortion ring, and there is a school of economics that does this, if you understand government itself as a as a you know as a criminal gang, whatever business you know, and 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 of course, government is criminal. The free market government or, or business, I should say, the private sector is all pure and light and good and natural and normal. And government is automatically intrusive, if not criminal. Um, then you know whatever business does to protect itself against the depredations of government is 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 justified. And whether we're talking about bribery or kickbacks or whatever it is, uh, is okay. Hmm. Okay. I don't believe that, there, but there are people who do. I th- I'm, I've stopped you guys now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's a stopper every time. Well, another uh, to, to sort of, I mean, uh, there's a couple of other points I wanted to bring up in the last few minutes. Um, one is, well, uh, the book, uh, well, there's two things I wanted to say. One is a somewhat critical uh, point about your book, which is that um, you, you, there, it is a, it is astonishing how often Jack Abramoff and Grover Norquist turn up in all of these things over and over again. But it does open you to the criticism that that these are just you know isolated examples. So how do you argue? How do you argue against that? Well, I, I took two different strategies with the book. I took a sort of overall strategy where I talk about conservative theory and conservative administrations, Reagan, uh, Bush Sr., Bush Jr. And then I also, uh, and then I followed this other, I mean, it's just, it's a narrative strategy is all. You know, and then I followed the career of Abramoff. And Norquist comes up in the career of Abramoff. Uh, you know, that's not, that's not my doing. It's <laughs> just the way it works out, you know. They were, they were friends. Right. Uh, but uh, I followed the career of Jack Abramoff. I sort of made him my ideal man, so that I would have. I, you know, I followed another strategy as well, which was to examine Washington physically. You know, what did the neighborhoods look like? What what do we learn from the architecture? That sort of thing. Uh, I tried to follow a bunch of different strategies, um, and you know, they, if they don't balance each other out, well, you know, I'm sorry. I tried my best. <laughs> So the other the other thing that I'm left uh, de- feeling desperate about, to be honest, is, you know, whether there's any real chance of walking it back. 
because, you know, there is so much money involved now. I mean, look at the privatization of the military, for example. I mean, uh, you're not going to be able to undo these things. You know, that's true. It's going to be very, very hard. But something is changing before our eyes. I mean, right now the market in the world, crash, and that mean. is the, the hmm. faith of, you know, the faith in laissez-faire in free market solutions is crumbling before our eyes. And I think that is an enormous opening for liberalism. And, uh, you know, whether Barack Obama can take the uh, opportunity or not remains to be seen. I think he can. I hope he does. Uh, well, you mean I mean, in terms of being able to win? Do you mean in terms of being able to win the election, or do you mean to win the election able... and then keep going from there? I mean, he's he's got to, uh, you know, he has he'll have a Democratic majority and he'll have room to run, and uh, you know he's he's got to you know implement you know just an enormous program of reform uh, just right off the bat. You know he'll have he'll have I figure three months to do it in. <laughs> yeah, that's the uh, the perpetual campaign mode. Uh, that's uh, taken over our government. Well, I find, uh, I I must say, speaking personally, I'm not so optimistic that Obama actually can or will uh, will do this. I I sort of see him as as being very similar to Bill Clinton, in fact. Well, he, he, he talks that way. But I mean, he he has talked that way in the past. But just in the last week or so, his rhetoric has swerved way to the left. Um, and I'm happy to see that. I hope so. I, he was certainly trying to stick it. Uh, to no, the, earlier he was saying things that I mean, you, you could have that could have come out of the mouth of Ronald Reagan. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Even last week he was backing away from rescinding Bush's tax cuts for the wealthy. I mean, amongst the list of yeah. other things. I've been very critical of Obama, but perhaps uh, perhaps with the market uh, crash going on now, that there may be uh, there may be some basis for criticism that will stick rather than oh, yeah. talking about idiotic simp- uh, simplicities. You well, also have to remember, you know. Franklin Roosevelt, when he was elected in 1932, people really did not know what he stood for, except for that he wasn't Herbert Hoover. Mm-hmm. And um, the, you know, the man was driven by circumstances to uh, to what he eventually became. Hell, same with Abraham Lincoln. You know, it's it's uh, I have I have I, I'm. It's funny as as things worsen in the world, my uh, my optimism increases. I, I, I'm like the most pessimistic guy you ever want to meet, but I, I'm I'm feeling good these days. Well, I hope I absolutely hope you're right. So it's nice to have a, to end on a positive note then. So Thomas Frank, uh, author of The Wrecking Crew: How Conservatives Rule, new book uh, available uh, in all fine bookstores now, and I recommend our listeners uh, read it. And Thomas, uh, thank you for being on Left Out. Sure, it's my pleasure. All right, that completes our program uh, for for today. Uh, Thank you all for listening. We'll resume our uh, every two-week schedule uh, uh, for one half hour instead of one hour as we have in the past, Uh, and we uh, hope that you'll listen again in uh, two weeks' time. Thank you for listening to Left Out. Thank you to Darren Guler for producing today's program.